Hi, this is your host, Ben Klenner, and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. Well, today on the show, I'm excited to bring to you an interview with Dominic Anfitiatro. Uh, what a cool last name, I just have to say. Uh, he is a kafir wizard of such, um, and he is featured in the book, The Art of Fermentation by Sandor Katz. Well, he's actually referenced in there as one of the guides that uh, Sandor learnt off of. So uh, Dominic is lives in Adelaide, Australia. So that's on the other side of Australia from me. Uh, he shares his story of how he came across kefir. And I love the way that Dom shares stories his story and just shares stories in, in general. He actually tells the story of where kefir grains came from. Um, and that's really cool. I just love the way that he's telling those stories. Um, then we get into why you should eat your kefir grains. You know, we get a bit more scientific. Uh, Dom's done lots of research, not as a scientist, but just as a, a citizen scientist. Uh, we talk about silken kefir, which is uh, one of Dom's sort of uh, recipes. Uh, we talk about kefir grains as systemic anti-inflammatories. Uh, we talk about adding kefir to other foods. Um, we talk about continuous secondary ferment. And we go into a little bit about his water kefir because mainly we're focused on the milk kefir here. This is the one that has the most beneficial properties is the milk kefir. But we do go into his water kefir and I'll add a link to a couple of his YouTube videos. You can see his water kefir grains doubling in size in only 24 hours. It's pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, Dom's really inspired me to produce more kefir. And in fact, I'm producing about two litres of kefir a day at the moment now because I'm trying to build up my grains as well so I can eat more kefir. Um, I'm doing a cleanse for two weeks, drinking lots of kefir, uh, lots of fresh fruits and veggies and a, a, still a bit of protein, but basically only eggs and mushrooms that I've cooked because mushrooms you can't digest without cooking them. I've also been growing more fantastic fungi, some uh, oyster mushrooms, because we want to be able to switch most of our protein intake to actually mushrooms. And I just think it's so cool that mushrooms are another way that you can create life. They're taking something that's dead. In, in this case, I'm using um, the, the base substrate that I'm using is pelletized newspaper, and they use that as kitty litter, but basically pelletized newspaper, adding a bit of nutrients to them, 
a bit of bran and a bit of trace minerals, that sort of stuff. But then you're growing your own mushrooms that you can eat that are actually really nutritious for you. So uh, that's one of the other things I've been doing. I've been, I'm, start, I'm finishing up the contract at Perth City Farm. So you would have heard me mention Perth City Farm a few times. Um, and yeah, the last stages were just finishing a shed that we put together there making some biochar, in fact, which is really cool. And we're charging that with some indigenous microorganisms. Um, we're actually going to add the, the the charged biochar to some of the market garden beds and do some trials, see how effective it actually is. One way of testing the effectiveness is with a microbiometer. Now, this measures the microbial biomass. Uh, yes, and this is our affiliate. Uh, if you go to microbiometer.com and you buy one of the kits, enter the promo code Probiotic Life, and you will get $10 off your purchase, which is essentially the first test for free. You'll be able to see the microbial biomass in your soil or test how high it is, the higher the better. And you'll also be helping the podcast by entering the promo code Probiotic Life. So that's our affiliate for today. And um, yeah, as I finish up at Perth City Farm, just want to throw it out there. I'm looking for people to do some other projects with. So if you are interested in what we're doing here at The Probiotic Life, I'm looking for uh, some other projects to actually partner with people, do some collaborations. So without further ado, let's get into this Fantastic episode with Dominic Anfitiatro. Today on The Probiotic Life, we are talking to Dominic Anfitiatro. Welcome to the show, Dom. I'm welcomed. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Ben. This is a privilege. Yeah, and um, if anyone's ever looked on uh, Google for more than a few minutes, looking up uh, kefir, they've probably come across your site. It's, it's uh, obviously been up for a long time. It's a, sort of an old school website, but it has fantastic information on kefir and, uh, and lots of stuff more than just kefir, but really getting into it. So that's what I'd love to talk to you today, Dom. Sure, sure. Yeah, it has it has a lot of information, uh, extended uses of kefir, which I've developed over the years, and uh, it's an ongoing work in progress, which I started in 1997. Uh, yeah, so it's ongoing. You know, if you look at the uh, last published uh, edited, you usually find it's not within a few months that I've, up, I've, a- I've added something to it, so it's always growing, my website. Yeah, so, um, you know, there's lots of information out there on the in- internet about um, – Kefir and lots of videos, which basically it seems to, they all seem to say the same thing. But when I come across your um, website, must have been a couple of years ago at first, I was like, wow, this guy actually is really doing some experimenting, doing some, you've obviously had an interest in it for a while. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your story with Kefir. Um, but first, just take us back, take a, sh- share with us a little bit about you, about where where you came from and how you were raised. Okay. I've got uh, two Italian parents who uh, to this day still haven't naturalised. They live in Australia still, not far from me. Um, my second language was English. 
so I was raised being an Italian boy here in Adelaide. And uh, uh, then I started learning English at school. And being grown up with parents who were virtually um, grown up in a village in, in Italy, like uh, through the uh, World War Two, just at the end of World War Two, and even before that, they were self-sufficient villages uh, in, near Naples. Uh, one place called Benevento. It's a big region, and there's sub-regions of this region. And my parents were uh, born close to each other in two small villages. And they grew up making their own uh, breads, you know, like growing their wheat uh, and then getting it milled from a local miller and then, uh, uh, you know, baking it in their local homemade ovens and uh, making their own hemp material, like they grew uh, hemp to grow uh, uh, for making their own cloth and even silos to keep their wheat off the ground because hemp's such a strong material they could make uh, large sacks that could hold tons of wheat off the ground. So, you know, they killed pigs every year and and made sausages, which is a fermented product. You know, they made cheeses. And so that was uh, – I was brought up in that that scenario because my parents kept up that tradition when they were in Australia, when they came to Australia. Um, And later on, I just uh, got uh, more interested into that area. And I had a grandmother that uh, came to Australia in 1964, and she had so many – uh, interesting things that I always asked her about, like what did you do before there was medicine and what did you do before there was electricity? Because she was born in 1889, 1890, sorry, 1899, and she died in 2006. So she she was 100 and, 100 and something years old when she wow. passed, 106 when she passed away, yeah. Uh, might have been 2004 actually when she passed away. Uh, no, 2005. Anyway, somewhere around there. She, she died 106. And so she was. She saw three centuries, you know, born in 1899, uh, 1899, and then died in 2005 or six. She saw three centuries, you know, 18th, 19th, and 20th. That's amazing. So, so, yeah. so you really had a connection with your 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 nonna, is it? My nonna, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd ask, what did you do when you didn't have um, soap? You know, it wasn't soap invented in those days. So she taught me how to use ash, you know, for making detergents and. That's why I've got a section on my website on how to use ash for making detergent, liquid detergent, uh, for washing up utensils, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah, uh, like, you know, I, said, I used to ask her, when you had a cold, what would you do? And she showed me the herbs that she would use, you know. And uh, um, So would, yeah. would you say there's any, any one – is there one memory or a couple of memories that really stood out to you of your, your childhood that really defined your journey or defined who you are? Yeah, okay. I played football in grade four or five and I sprained my finger. And I remember going to the doctor who gave me a cortisone shot and the pain just wouldn't go away. So being in a a local uh, small uh, Italian community here where I grew up in Adelaide, uh, there's a lot of people that knew each other from from their home townships, you know, and there was one lady that they, you know, knew as a herbalist. So my mum took her took me to this lady, an Italian lady, and she put, she massaged my finger with olive oil and then she wrapped, actually, she, she got this egg white and beaded it until it was like pavlova. Then she got this gauze and dipped it in this pavlova mixture and wrapped it around my finger after she massaged the olive oil for a while. And then she said, leave it on for four days, you know, and that almost turned like a, a natural plaster, you know, because the egg white sort of started going hard as it dried. And then four days later, I took it off. And the pain had gone. And that really stayed with me. You know, I had a vision of the doctor giving me this injection and didn't do nothing. And a few months later, I was still in pain. And then four days later, after this lady put this egg white uh, poultice on my finger, I was cured, you know. 
So that really stayed with me. I said, wow, natural healing has got something here. And I was very young when I was uh, that influenced that uh, way of uh, healing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from thereafter, at a young age, I just, as I said, I started asking my grandma all these questions on, you know, what, what to do when, you know, when, when you get problems health-wise and she'll always give me an answer. So, yeah. And then uh, later on, um, I started reading health books. Like there's one man I started reading his books because he was into fasting and I was very curious about fasting at an early age at about 16. And his name was uh, Dr. Pavo Airola and he wrote one book called How to Get Well in the 70s, early 70s. And in that book he mentioned kefir being a, uh, a, food, a real elixir of youth and he mentioned these kefir grains which uh, you can purchase at the time in America. There was some place in New York in Long Island somewhere, a little company who – you could purchase kefir grains from, and and uh, he mentions how to make it, and he says these kefir grains are put in milk, and you and they're left in milk for 24 hours, and it's strained. Then you reuse these kefir grains, and they're reusable, and they're centuries old, and they come from the Caucasus Mountains, and you know that really stayed in my mind. I said, wow, these things must be really, you know, really powerful uh, for this guy to write about it. So I had my eye out for kefir grains ever since then, and about four years later, I was fasting. On grapes, so I did a six and a, seven and a half week grape fast, where I just ate nothing but grapes for seven and a half weeks. And on my sixth week, I was going for a drive in the hills every day, and I was going for a, a, a swim in this little spot that was uh, very uh, deep. And I'd use it part of my therapy, fasting therapy, uh, where I'd just jump in there and stay in there for about five minutes. It was like a, a, a hydrotherapy. And on my way home, this guy was pushing a push bike with a puncher. And I had a station wagon then, an EH Holden station wagon. I thought, well, it's a really hot day here. Uh, this guy looks like he's going to punch. I better go back and see if he needs a lift. If he's walking back all the way to Adelaide, the city, you know, it's got a bit of a walk. So I went back and I said, listen, mate, you need a lift. You've got a problem there. It seems like you've got a puncher. He goes, yeah, I have, but I just live around the corner. And this is in the hills, right? I said, oh, okay then. Because he says, thanks for stopping. Come and have a coffee with me. Uh, I just live around the corner just a step away. Come and, come and meet my wife and... You know, for being kind enough, I want to, you know, say thank you. So I said, okay. So once I got into his house, I saw this jar on the kitchen bench with milk in there, and it was coagulated, and something just asked me to ask him. I said, by any chance, is that stuff on that counter kefir? And he goes, yeah. How do you know that kefir, he asked. And I said, oh, it is kefir. I, I, just, I just sort of, you know, got so excited. I said, wow, I've seen kefir for the first time that I've been looking out for about four or five years now. And that's the day that the man gave me some kefir for the very first time I was introduced to it. And to this day, I still have. And it was 1978, the summer of 1978. Wow. Yeah. What a great story. So he actually got you. Where did, so where did he get the, the kefir from? Uh, they had a friend who was a yoga teacher here in Adelaide uh, that travelled around the world five years prior he went to uh, Switzerland apparently, and he bought, and he got it back from Switzerland. He, he, he took it back on the plane on his journey back to Adelaide from Switzerland, and uh, so they had it for five years before that. Before they gave it to me, and you have the same culture that you that you got in nineteen seventy nine. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. It's it's uh, you know it's continually been going. You know, and if I ever lost it, I'd always go back to them and get some more. And sometimes they had lost it, and I would have some. So. You know, we kept on bouncing off each other over all over these over all these years, and we still do sometimes. You know, they they, they might lose it because someone might come there because they have uh, woofers stay over there. You know what woofers are? Yeah, yeah. Oh, explain explain for the uh, all the listeners what what is uh, woofing. Woofer stands for working on organic farm for board, 
or something for accommodation. Uh, so what happens is people who've got farms, organic farms, they can have people who are travelling stay there and get free food and board and they do a little bit of work on the land. So it's a bit of a, you know, a, what do you call that when you a bartering system, yeah. So because they have woofers come over and stay, sometimes what's happened in the past is some thought, someone saw this jar and they thought it was off milk and they just chucked it away, you know. <laughs> so they oh, dropped no. the rains. <laughs> the dog money guy had a woofer stay over last night. You know the story. I said, okay, okay, Mike, well, I'll be there tomorrow with some fresh grains. And, you know, so many times we've had to give grains to each other because I've lost them a, a couple of times in the early on, especially in the 80s, you know. Just got a bit slack with them or whatever, you know, uh, where I left them in the same milk for too long, you know. And they died, so I would go back to them and they'd give me some more. But, you know, yeah, the same batch, though, you know, we've had amongst us since 1978 from me, but they've had them for five years before that. So, yeah. Wow. And so can you explain a little bit about what is this kefir? So this is milk kefir that you started with. Yes, I started with milk kefir. Well, milk kefir is a fermented milk product which has a sour flavour and it's slightly carbonated because kefir, uh, apart, uh, not like unlike yogurt, has got yeast activity. And how you make it, you've got these um, cauliflower-looking, like uh, cauliflower floret-like um, globules, slimy globules that bacteria and yeasts create symbiotically while they're in milk, and uh, they harbour themselves in this matrix, this white slimy matrix, and you put them in the milk. And as they are in the milk, they digest the milk, you know, they, they make uh, all these uh, wonderful healthy byproducts and uh, uh, the next day you strain it because the, the milk is thoroughly fermented and then you add them again into another, the same jar and you top them up with more fresh milk and you repeat the process. It's very simple. So that's, uh, that's how the Caucasians did it because apparently this kefir grain originated in the northern slopes of the Caucasus Mountains uh, believed to go, be, believed to be dated back some fifteen hundred years at least, you know. Uh, and these people, these Caucasians, um, they were very uh, jealous of this uh, kefir grain. They looked at it as money, you know. They used to use it as a money amongst themselves. Uh, it was their tribal wealth as well. And uh, they were jealous. They were very jealous. They wouldn't. If you were not, they were Muslims. So if you were not of their faith, they would not ever give it to you. You know, you had to be a Muslim to to, to receive some kefir grains. You know, so they were very, uh, very particular. So it was kept a secret there for a long time until the Russians learned about it. Uh, they got very curious about these people living, you know, 110, 120 years old and fathering kids at 90 years old. And they, they found that they had this one difference that other people didn't have. It was this fermented product and, and they uh, were very curious to get some. So they uh, organised a, a, a Two guys who had cheese factories in the Caucasus Mountains, the uh, the all Russian the all Russian physician society organised these two men to uh, to uh, get some kefir grains for the for the Russians. So uh, these two guys, uh, two, they were two brothers. They organised this uh, uh, worker for, who worked in the factory called Irina. Uh, she was a very beautiful girl, and um, they knew of this prince in this area who had the grain. So. They organised for him to meet this girl, and her job, her she became like an agent, you know, for the Russians or Russian Precision <laughs> Society to, to try to smuggle these grains from him, you know, or try to get him to give her some. So, uh, you know, he fell, you know, when they met, he fell in love with her instantly. Apparently, you know, she was that beautiful. So she finally got to ask him, you know, I hear you got these grains, you know, but because he was, she wasn't, 
Muslim. He goes, no, I can't give them to you. It's against my religion, you know, something like that, you know. <laughs> so, but what happened is he 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 got he kidnapped her. He had actually kidnapped her, and these two brothers eventually rescued her. And what happened is they brought that prince to the Tsar's court, and they charged him for you know kidnapping. And uh, uh, so, eventually, the 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 outcome of that uh, court case was that. Um, you know, he offered the, the, her jewels and money for reparation, but she didn't want that. She goes, no, I want what he has and what I originally went there for was for Kefi grains and the court, the Tsar's court made him give up these grains and that's how they were first apparently um, um, released from the, the, the secret society. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, and they were from that batch, you know, they went worldwide within a few years, I suppose, you know, within – 20, 30 years, they were, you know, found all sorts of places in the world, you know. But the Russians used them exclusively at first in lung sanitariums for curing the tuberculosis, where uh, previously right? they were using okay. kumus. Yeah. Previously they would use kumus, which is made from mare's milk by the Mongolians. Um, and they substituted the kumus for kefir, and they, were getting, they found they were getting better results than the kumus for people with, with tuberculosis. In lung sanitariums, yeah, which they still use to this day, apparently, in, in similar circumstances, in similar institutions, yeah, in, and so, in uh, and, Russia. And so you've actually um, done a bit of research on the grains. Tell us, do you know, like, what's the sort of um, constituents of the grains? Because uh, what I've heard is that, that no one's actually been able to reproduce them um, in terms of, like, creating the same sort of symbiotic culture. You have to just get them from a culture that's already going. There's there's no way of, that's right. of doing it. So do you, you know a bit about that? Well, we're still trying to learn how these bacteria create this matrix. Like uh, I remember in the 70s, uh, the, the early 80s, I was doing research and I was going to the library a lot, especially when I was fasting. I, I would... Uh, I would fast and, and my brain was, you know, I was so hungry, I would sort of transmute my energy for hunger for food and transmit it for hunger for knowledge. So I'd go to the library and just read up on stuff, especially food things, you know. <laughs> mm. So I'd get my mind off uh, of uh, eating while I was fasting. It helped a bit. So I would, I would go to the um, food and science abstracts and read up on kefir a lot. And I remember reading one part, one, one research abstract, where they asked the Caucasians, you know, where did you get these kefir grains from? Because, we, you know, these guys were trying to uh, – uh, they isolated the bacteria from the grains, you know, and they'll culture them separately as pure cultures, and then they'll mix them all together and put them in milk, and they would expect them to form the grains, you know, just by the bacteria alone and the yeasts. And they found after many, many trials they just wouldn't form grains, you know using the very bacteria that they separated from the grains. So they eventually asked the Caucasians, you know, how did you get these things? How did you guys make them, you know? And their reply was, well, they were a gift from Allah 1,000 years ago. <laughs> a gift from God 1,000 wow. years ago. That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, so even to this day, we don't know how exactly the grains are formed. You know, we know what bacteria are responsible for the formation, but we don't know how their interaction are with other bacteria to actually create it you know, a grain. So we can't synthesize one, or if you want to call it synthesize one, artificially make one um, ourselves um, using scientific methods of today. Yeah. Mm. So the, how they how they come about is still a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. That You know, that's a great analogy um, in my mind for the probiotic life. You know, this podcast is all about 
probiotics and and also connecting with nature. How are we? How do we connect with nature? And there's, there's things that we still don't know. There, in some ways, you could call them mystical things that yes. uh, we science cannot explain, like yes. these uh, kefir grains. Um, yeah. But they they they're a reality. They're here, and and uh, it's sort of I like that. It's like a sort of a me- a metaphor for um, for life. Yes, and for respect for life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you had these um, grains going. When did you really? Yes. When when did you uh, start to do more than just you know ferment them and drink them? Did did you see some health? Um, sort of differences differences in your health, or did you just decide, yeah, I'm going to go for this? What was what was uh, going yeah, on for you? I noticed when I was drinking it, I had more vitality, uh, more energy, uh, and then when I had bouts of uh, abstinence, that I would not have the same energy. Um, there's definitely a, a feel good factor. I felt better, well, more feeling of a, a feeling of well being when I was on when I was drinking it regularly than when I than when I stopped. So there's there's a pronounced. Um, you know, pronounced feeling that you get. The actual word kefir apparently comes from the word Turkish word kaif, which means good feeling or feeling of well-being. Mm. So somehow the, they use the Turkish word in Russia to name these things kefir grains. So I believe anyway, uh, from the word kaif. So you know, there's there's a definite uh, association with uh, the gut brain pathway that's recently been discovered. Scientifically, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, kefir grains do, does influence predominantly, you know, in the psychoactively speaking metaphor, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to see it as a psychoactive component. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think that's uh, yeah. a, it's a good point, you know, like where is the distinction, where is the line between uh, food and medicine? It, it, you know, yes. we should think that food is medicine, um, as uh, I yes. think as Socrates said. And Socrates said that. Let food be your medicine, and medicine be your food. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so you got the you had these grains, and then you started experimenting with them. What what were yes. you discovering started, when you started when you started experimenting with them? Well, because I had uh, already at that time, I was making. Um, uh, uh, I introduced uh, another product to Australia or to Adelaide at least called um, tempeh, fermented soybeans with a mold. Mm-hmm. I was uh, commercially making them that in 1980, uh, 1980, yeah, um, and um, I was making it for local health food shops, and that's that that that's just an Indonesian fermented soy product where whole soybeans are split in half and parboiled, par cooked, and then fermented with a special mould of the uh, Oligosporus uh, Rhizopus Oligosporus strain very specific uh, white mould that grows black spores. And uh, that produces heat by itself uh, after it starts growing mould through the soybeans. Like these soybeans within 24 hours are all bound together by a white mycelium of mould. They glued together to Mm. one cake, to a cake of tempeh. So I was making that commercially. So what I'm saying is I already had a fair knowledge about fermented foods because of my upbringing, you know, making wine with my dad and making bread with my mum and making cheeses and stuff. So – uh, I was interested in, at, at one point in making sauerkraut without salt. And so what I started doing was reading up on saltless sauerkraut and I, I found this man was making it, uh, uh, had a same curiosity, uh, Paul Bragg, 
who was a famous man from America who was into fasting. He wrote lots of books about fasting on mm, water. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a book about saltless sauerkraut because he, he was against eating salt, you know. So he heard about these two people living in Switzerland somewhere in the mountains, and they were very old people, and they made this recipe that they, it was their own recipe on making saltless sauerkraut. And eventually found a way to get to these people in Switzerland, these Alps, and got their recipe, and he wrote a book on it. So I was making that commercially in 1980 two here in Adelaide, calling it saltless sauerkraut. But it took 12 days to ferment using his recipe. So one day I said, let me try adding the kefir grains to this recipe and see how long it takes, see if it speeds up the fermentation process. So I added the kefir grains to the to the normal, you know, your normal sauerkraut recipe, minus the salt, of course. And I found what would take 12 days with his method, took only four days to ferment to get to pH 4.5, using the kefir grains. Wow, okay. So it markedly sped up the proce- process to a quarter of the time, you know. So I thought that was that could only be a good thing, you know. You're, mm. you're producing mm. some antioxidants very quickly, so you're not oxidizing any vitamins and things that are, you know, oxid- oxidative, you know. You know, yeah, it's like snap snap fermentation. So you know? this, this, is, this is interesting. So, so you used the milk kefir grains, Originally, milk kefir grains. That's all I had. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so let's make that distinction, though, because there's there's the water kefir grains as well. That's right. What's is what's yes. the difference there? Well, they're the only two ferments in the world that rely on a matrix that are created by bacteria and yeast symbiotically. Uh, the the water grains are made up of a a different component, though. They are fermented in a sugar solution, sugar and water solution. Um, the the long-standing recipe is um, uh, unrefined sugar with a fig and a slice of lemon. And you add these white ice-looking, like crushed ice-looking grains. They're translucent. They're not white and slimy like the milk grains. These are a solid um, gel-like uh, grains that uh, when you press them and squeeze them, they break apart. Like, like with a faceted edge, you know, they just like shear apart. Whereas the milk grains are slimy, like rubber. You know, they're like like a skin. You know, they're not. They don't just tear or rip apart mm. when you squeeze them. Yes, and uh, well, uh, milk kefir grains they're made up of a special substance called kefiran, which is the same as lactose, but equal proportions of what lactose is made up of. And lactose is made up of galactose and glucose. Right uh, uh, now, the kefiran is those two monosugars are equal portions of. So the bacteria, they break down the lactose into their simple galactose and glucose components and they, re, they, they rebuild it again to make the slime factor of equal portions of both of those monosugars and that's the grain part. It's a slimy mm. constituent of milk grains called kefiran. With other, uh, where on the other hand, with the water grains, they are 100% glucose, but it's a dextran form of glucose. It's got a hexa... The molecule. I think it's like it's got five or six uh, bonds. I'm not sure. I can't. I can't recall chemically because I'm not a chemist. But you know, it's a complex molecule of just glucose, and it's a dextran. It's known as a dextran. You know. Yeah. Um, they uh, with milk grains. We can't digest the kefiran because there's a random link in that polysaccharide. There's a link that's just randomly put here and there on the molecule, and because Enzymes need to be perfect lock and key, you know. You can't have one key shifting all the time and, and then produce an enzyme that will shift with it. So we can't produce an enzyme that can break down kefiran. 
right? That's interesting. Whereas, wow, okay. Yeah, because of that uh, random linkage in that uh, in that chikifiran. Uh, whereas with uh, uh, the, the water grains, the glucose, I don't think there is a, land, uh, a random linkage. But because it's such a complex molecule, it's, it isn't easy to digest anyway. It's not as easy as just pure glucose, for instance, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's even the same energy caloric value, you know, if you were to sort of eat the same amount of glucose by weight of uh, glucose, pure glucose, and the same weight of, of the grain – Form of glucose, the dextrin. I don't think they'll give you the same energy value. I think you know, the, the grain will probably give you a quarter of the value because we probably can't digest it properly for some reason. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much research done on it. I haven't seen any, but that's just my my observation of it. You know, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you do have a lot of great information on your website, and um, I have heard that most. You know, I started out with uh, the milk kefir, and I've recently got some water grains, um, yes. and I'm not so keen on them. I don't feel like I notice as much of a difference when I'm when I'm drinking the water kefir, and I've yes. I've noticed mo- most people that I talk to that have tried both say that they yes. they think that the milk kefir is uh, beneficial some somehow maybe if they can't even describe it but it's more beneficial for them. Yeah, yeah, their body tells them. Yeah, definitely, I feel the same as well. But the thing is, the magical thing is that that this is what I've always tried to teach people from the word from the moment I've got grains. The lady that gave them to me, Michael's wife, and them, that she told me to eat your grains because they start doubling every week. You know, you have too many, so eat your extra grains. You know, mm, so mm. I started eating my grains from the word go. And my 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 web page, uh, my the whole theory behind my web page is to expand the uses of kefir, but the main point is to teach people to eat their spare grains because the most beneficial therapeutic part of the whole kefir process is actually ingesting the actual kefir grains. They give you power that the grain, the, 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 the products they produce, the kefirs they produce do not provide. Uh, I'm talking about power as in, you know, healing power. Wow, okay. Um, there's certain bacteria in the grains recently discovered that's, that belongs to the bifidum bacteria, Right. Until now, we didn't know that the grains contained them. They thought they were lactobacillus acidophilus strains, but they weren't. There are specific bifidum bacterium, one very specific one that will grow at four degrees and in air, which most bifidum don't like air. This particular one um, will grow at four degrees. It's a cold-loving, air-loving bifidum bacterium. Um, and um, the only way to get the the, the the benefit of the bifida bacterium is to eat the grains because they do not release that bifida bacteria in the ferment. They're known as uncultivable, uncultivable, uncultivable <laughs> scientifically. Uh, that's why they could never discover them. You know, they'll, they'll, put, they'll make slides and I'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take some bacteria and make slides on agar, agar, and none of these bacteria will ever grow, you know, uh, until, they, uh, re- until we got really good with DNA and DNA compatibility. DNA to DNA comparison, you know, we discovered that, wow, there's DNA of, you know, different bacteria here and they're encapsulated in the grain only. And they did it in the milk kefir and they couldn't find any in the milk kefir or the water kefir. Now, both grains contain these different bacteria, both types of grains. Now, that's so fascinating. Eat the grains. Okay, so yeah. eat, eat the grains. Now, I've been eating the grains and I told some people about that and they're like, that's just weird. But um, yeah. so do you need a do you need, do you need to bite bite the grain to break them up, or do you just swallow them? Because I usually just swallow them with a bit of uh, kefir. Yeah, um, the milk grains 
because they're hard to digest, like, you know, they'll come, they'll go in roughly the same way as they came out in a way, because, <laughs> you know, our body can't digest, the, the, you know, the, uh, the the polysaccharide, which is why it's also therapeutic. Um, uh, you know, it, it virtually does, it goes through, not untouched, but, you know, it, it can go through the system, do its job as a, as a therapeutic agent and not mm. be tra- changed that much, you know. Uh, it's like a catalyst almost, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, the best way to use them, I produce a product for myself and I try to teach people to use it, uh, which I call silk and kefir. And that's made by using equal amounts of water grains and milk grains. And let's say I use a half a cup of water grains and a half a cup of milk grains and one cup of milk kefir and I'll blend that in a vitamizer in a blender. And what you make is this yogurt-like consistency that you can eat with a spoon and it's got a very silky, jelly like uh, mouthfeel. It's beautiful. That's why I call it silk and kefir because it's very uh, silky in the mouth. It's a beautiful Mm. mouthfeel. You know, it's very delicious and easy to drink. And it's, you know, as soon as you put it in your mouth, you realize this is really soothing, you know, and and it's soothing for the GI tract, you know, so it's very beneficial for inflammation of the bowel. It's got um, systemic anti inflammatory properties, first off. And I was one of the first people to discover that uh, kefir grains have got uh, a systemic anti inflammatory property when I started rectally injecting kefir grains in 1999 when I got ulcerative colitis. Um, wow. Um, okay. Which I cured myself. Yeah. Which I cured myself of that disease uh, back then within two weeks of rectally injecting kefir grains. Um, whereas for three months I was on prednisolone, I was getting worse and worse. And my, my uh, specialist was actually getting quite concerned that, you know, the amount of prednisolone it was giving me wasn't doing nothing for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just the side effects were working, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I decided to use the alternative path and I just said to myself, well, actually, I actually t- told the doctor one day, I said, look, since your pills aren't doing nothing for me, do you have rectal injections of this prednisolone? Because I had my uh, uh, my inflammation of the bowel was right in the S-bend, you know, right near the anus end. So I mm-hmm. thought, you know, if, if there's a, 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 an enema form of this prednisolone, we could topically apply it instead of pill form, you know. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, Dominic, that's the next step. You're, you know, I don't know how you know, but that, that's what I was that – was, that's my next step is to give you enemas of this stuff. And as I, as I finished saying that, I said to them, look, I've got this uh, – I had this vision, you know. I said, I've got this culture at home that's very therapeutic, and I've done research and I've – Rectally injected in guinea pigs for doing all these tests, you know, and they find it safe to rectally inject with guinea pigs, you know. And what if I rectally inject that? Because oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Anyway, <laughs> he prescribed me. A, <laughs> he prescribed me a script for prednisolone enemas, and I never, never got it. To, never got it. To, um, you know, uh, what do you call it when you go to a, a chemist and get your prescription done? <laughs> never I never got, got it dispensed. Yeah. Yeah. Never got it dispensed, and I started immediately that day. Rectally injecting the kefir grains. Two weeks later, I had this, an appointment with this, this gastroenterologist, and he put the scope up there, just a, a normal scope, not a gastro, not, he didn't do a colonoscopy, just a, a normal scope, because it was right in the S band. You could see if the inflammation had changed, because he had thought that I was on the animals, right? That he prescribed. So he looked up there, he goes, Dom, wow, we're finally getting there. 80% inflammation gone. The animals of cortisone are working, he goes. I got that pres- prescription that he gave me two weeks prior and put it on the table. I said, Doctor, isn't this the way you gave it to me? <laughs> oh, wow. He goes, well, what the flipping? I said, well, you know how I said to you that day I wanted to try that? I said, I've been doing that. And he went red like a beetroot, this doctor. I've never seen a person change so quickly in, you know, in, in skin tone. He just went bright <laughs> red. <laughs> wow. 
So so he uh, he was surprised, but maybe um, not not as pleased as you thought he would be about doing yeah. some alternative medicine, which confused me. Which confused me. I thought he would have been pleased. I thought he, he thought, well, wow, this is interesting. But he was an old man, you know. Like a, a year later, he actually retired. You know, he was in the last years of his career, so mm-hmm. you know he was old school, and you know, yeah. I think there's there's something to say for that, you know. There's the 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 allopathic medicine, the um, what we call modern medicine, um, yeah. and as you mentioned, um, Paul Bragg, he was an alternative medicine sort of guy. I, re- I remember hearing a story about him from um, uh, Doctor Di Martini and talk, talking yeah. about um, the alternative medicine. So so there's definitely something there that that we really don't can't fully grasp but if you're open to it if your heart's open to it then you'll start to find these ways that's right well, there's a jewel in everything i think there's a jewel in everything you know mm. there's a jewel in, in, in modern medicine there's a jewel in therapeutic uh, herbs you know and there's a jewel in kefir you know mm. you mm-hmm. know there's many jewels in kefir so there's so many it's, it's multi-therapeutic you know mm. values just mm-hmm. getting discovered more and more as more research is done on on the stuff you know mm. mm-hmm. yeah yeah. So what happened then, not long after that, uh, uh, there was a Brazilian man uh, who was a professor in biology, Schneidoff, his surname was, Jose Schneidoff, and he wanted some kefir grains for some research in Brazil in the University of Afanas. And I just killed myself of this problem, and, uh, and I, I wrote back to this man. I said, look, I'm willing to send you these grains gratis if you keep me up with any, on any of your research. And I said, also, would it be possible for you to do some research in this area because I just recently cured myself by rectally injecting these guys from ulcerative colitis, by rectally injecting these guys. I put that the wrong way around. Excuse me, folks. <laughs> so to my surprise, he was quite willing to do that, and he actually made me um, sort of like a uh, co-author of his research, and uh, he, uh, him and his team finally published a book called uh, Phytotherapeutics – Phyto um, – well – it's actually in, in Portuguese. Uh, it's phytotherapeutics, uh, anti-inflammatorios, aspectos. Um, well, if I if I translate it, it's uh, phytotherapy and anti-inflammatory properties of plants, right? Mm. And uh, they've got one chapter on kefir grains of the research that he did to prove that kefir grains have got an anti-inflammatory property, systemic anti-inflammatory property. That's why it's part of this book. That's fascinating. Mentions herbs and the ther- and the yeah. So I was uh, my uh, my name is with that chapter. It's chapter thirty three of the book and and uh, and uh, the title. You know the name of the authors are Jose Maurizio Schneidoff and Dominic Anfichatro, and uh, chapter thirty three. So you know that's that's how you know I, I was the first guinea pig <laughs> on uh, rectally injecting them. And this guy uh, was willing enough to do some trials where he uh, got these rats and he. Uh, uh, induced glaucoma on them, uh, lab lab induced glaucoma, and then he fed them kefir grains, and uh, and he had a group with drugs, you know, giving them anti-inflammatory drugs, and he had a group that was given nothing, you know, you know how they do their trials, and they found that the kefir grains gave a predominant systemic anti-inflammatory effect. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that in mind, and um, 
any of you out there who's willing to, to try a uh, kefir grain enema, well, let me know how you go. I might not be so keen yeah. first up, but um. Well, I've got a web page on how to on how to do that. I've got a web page on my site on how it explains on how to do it. But I find though that uh, you don't have to do the rectal implants. Just eating the grains to give you even a more pronounced effect than rectal injecting them. Because what I was doing. I didn't mention this. I forgot to mention it. I wasn't only just rectally injecting them. I was also eating them. I did I did both treatments when okay. I had that ulcerative colitis. Right. So I forgot to mention that. I also mm. ate the grains. So I put them in both ends, you know. <laughs> yeah. Attack, attack the disease from all angles. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, we, we I think we, we dropped a story halfway there of you were making kraut, sauerkraut without any yeah. salt. Um, yes. Can you explain to me why? What's the benefits of not making it with with salt? Well, um, well, I sort of was on the old school of Paul Bragg being against having too much salt, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. So I was trying to eliminate salt in my diet, my diet, not eliminate it completely, but you know, too much salt is just no good for you, right? Mm. And plus, in the, in a, in a proper diet, if you have enough calcium in your diet, like. A lot of high salt eating countries, and they live old ages. They've got a lot of calcium intake as well, mm. like whole salted fish. You know, small fish. They eat the bones and all. You know, there's lots of calcium there. And every uh, ten grams of, Tim, uh, uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, every every gram of sodium you need uh, takes away uh, 100 milligrams of calcium or something. I can't remember the exact that scientific ratio, but yeah. So you know, you need to if you're going to increase your sodium intake, you need to increase your calcium intake to stop the bad effect of sodium, apparently. So, you know, originally sauerkraut's made with salt, but they use limestones as a weight source. Now, oh, okay. all the acidity, yeah, so all the acidification happening during the fermentation would dissolve a lot of calcium from that limestone. But today's calcium, uh, today's sauerkraut is not made like that. They make it with, you know, in, in wooden barrels with wooden weights or whatever, you know, there's no limestone added to it. So, you know, all the sodium, but no calcium in the cow, you know. So I thought, well, instead of having to work out, your, you know, your calcium and sodium balance, just don't include any sodium. Try to come up with a product that doesn't have that much sodium. You know, that's why I was trying to make saltless sauerkraut, you know. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And, okay. finally, and finally come up with a way of fermenting it very quickly because there was, all, there was already an invention by, by these two old people in Switzerland, remember, that Paul Bragg discovered. Mm. It was already mm. invented that you can it – was, it was possible to do, you know, but I wanted to do it much more faster mm. you know, than mm. those – yeah, that's where the kefir grains came into play, yeah. And so you went from, went from there and then you then – you, uh, seems like uh, looking at your website, you have experimented doing all sorts of things with kefir grains. you want to share with us a little bit more about what, what other things you've been doing with them? Well, okay. Um, I find that when you – when you include milk kefir grains in a bread, you know, a normal bread-making recipe, let's say to every five, uh, 500 grams of flour, you include two tablespoons of milk kefir grains and you blend them with, say, two tablespoons of flaxseed, right, uh, and, uh, uh, say, uh, enough water to make it be blendable. And then you include that into your normal bread recipe. There's an interaction with the polysaccharide of milk kefir grains, that slime factor, and the starch and possibly the, the gluten, I don't know, of, uh, of, of wheat. As a matter of fact, it, it even happens with non-gluten products like, like with rice flour. So it's not the gluten. It's got to be the starch of wheat that when you cook 
that bread, the crust is really crispy. You know, it gives you a really crispy crust and and the bread stays nice and moist because of the slimy factor of the kefiran. Mm. It uh, gives it a more moisty, uh, more moisture uh, containing uh, bread, much more nicer, you know, to eat. And you've got the th- anti-therapeutic property and the, and the anti-cancer property of kefiran, which is heat resistant, you know. The thing is with kefiran, it still remains therapeutic at 100 degrees of cooking, you know. Wow. So it's so heat at, at, a, at boiling temperature, it's still it's it still, doesn't destroy uh, its therapeutic property. Wow. Yeah, okay. it's still ther- it's still got therapeutic properties. Mm. So you can make all these wonderful, even cooked foods. And okay, you're not you're killing the bacteria, but you're not killing the anti-inflammatory property. You know, so it's still beneficial to cook with it. You know, because people say, well, "Why would you want to cook it? You're destroying the you night." Know? But okay, yeah, it's it's just a different way of using it, and it's another way of using your extra grains. You know. Up to up to now, people have been throwing away their grains. You know, they didn't know what to do with them. They don't know what to do with them. Sometimes I teach you, look, there's all these things you can do with them. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 you can make butter with them. Like I uh, blend them with cream, and uh, let the cream stand for a few hours to acidify a bit, and then I make butter out of it. You know, and there's uh, the kefiran and the butter. You know, ah, so, so so it's really the the key that I'm getting is actually to use the grains, not just the, the grains. Yeah. Not just okay. the kefir, yeah. 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 I mean, I've also developed cheeses. I was one of the first people, if not the first pe- person on this planet to make cheese with kefir. And then from that on, I started making blues and breeze, you know. Uh, this is way back in the 80s, you know. Uh, and that's also published on my site on how to do It's very easy to do. It's one of the simplest cheeses to make. It's a sour cheese, you know, because it's a sour milk product you begin with. Mm. But uh, you can also make a sweet cheese with kefir, and that is by um, – Say you heat up milk, fresh milk, to about 70 degrees Celsius, and you add milk kefir that's nice and sour. Say one cup of milk kefir to two litres of fresh milk that's been up to 70 degrees. And what happens is the acidity of kefir coagulates the milk, you know. Mm. And that curd, when you pull it out and you put it in a sieve, is like – Cottage cheese. It's a sweet cheese. It's not a sour cheese. Although you use the bit of sourness to make it, there's not enough sourness to give it a sour flavour. It's actually a sweet curd. And you can make cheddar-type cheeses with that type of uh, kefir-made cheese because you use kefir as a coagulant, you know. Whereas I'll make other cheeses purely out of kefir where I put kefir after it's fermented with the grains and strained. So without the grains, just a strained kefir, I put that in a cloth, like a pillowcase. It has to be tight, really woven material because the curds of kefir are very small. Mm. You know, that's why they're so easy to digest. They're smaller than yogurt. And they'll pass through a cheesecloth. So you've got to use it like a pillowcase type of material. You make a bag out of that and you put the kefir in there and you let the, the whey drain and you're left with the cream cheese. Now, this cream cheese I call kefir leben. I've, I've given it that name, kefir leben. And uh, you can either eat it as a fresh cheese or if you press it with a, a sufficient weight in a cheese form, it holds its shape. And from that you can make other cheeses like um, like I make a fantastic uh, Parmesan cheese in three weeks, you know. It normally takes months and months and months to make Parmesan. But with kefir, using this fashion of pressing the kefir after it's been drained – so it holds its shape and you let it dry on wooden boards. Every day you turn it and wipe it with olive oil so it doesn't get mould. Uh, after it goes yellow and it gets a crust, you know, you could either, depending on what, what stage you seed it or use it, it will depend on what sort of cheese you're making. Like to make a, a cheddar cheese, you wait until the rind is yellow about, you know, 
a centimetre deep, you know, and it goes yellow and um, um, you can cut it and it's just like a cheddar cheese. If you leave it to dry longer, until it's dried right through, then you've got a Parmesan-type cheese. It's gradable and used just like Parmesan and it even tastes like Parmesan. So the, the, how much you dry it is, you know, is, is will determine the type of cheese you make. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, there's two ways of making it, as I said, you know, purely out of kefir or using kefir as a coagulant to coagulate a large volume of hot milk. And that will give you sweet cheese. Yeah. So it sounds like there's lots of different ways that you can experiment with using this uh, for milk and for uh, all sorts of things, sauerkraut and everything. Yes. Um, that's right. That's I'm, right. I'm interested for, our, especially for our listeners to, to learn a bit more about how do how do you actually the basics of making the the kefir and you know like some people say oh don't let it go too long because uh, then it's not uh, kefir anymore. Well, sometimes I'll leave mine. You know, I've got young kids and I just plain forget to do it for you know four or five days. Uh, I just mix yeah. it back together and drink it. But what, what's your sort of recommendations of the basics of how to do kefir? Okay, well for. The, the grains will let you know if you're harming them and how you know is by their growth and mm-hmm. by their looks. If they're nice and large and fluffy and they grow and they double every five or six days in volume, they're healthy. And the only way to keep them healthy is the way that they've evolved and they've evolved by being in milk for one day only. Mm. You know, one day is, is more than enough that they need. Uh, leaving them for two days once in a while, three days once in a while is okay. But if you start leaving them for two days – Every time you make it, you'll notice that they'll start shrinking, getting smaller and smaller, and they get to a point where they slow down in growth. They won't grow as much, and they'll still grow, but not as much as if they were changing them daily. Mm. If you leave them for three days, they'll start getting smaller, 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 and they'll grow even less. They'll get to a point if you leave them for four days, within a couple of months, your your grains will will, will not grow anymore. You've killed them. You've You've damaged the growth factor. They'll still ferment the milk. They'll still make a form of kefir, but they will not make that kefir and that they that they that uh, kefir is known for. You know, because that part of the process that's uh, that's still a mystery to us is uh, being damaged. The growth factor. Great. So that that's good. So it really needs to be uh, every twenty four hours is the optimum. Yeah, twenty four hours is the optimum amount of time to leave them with the grains. If you want to ferment your milk for longer, then you can do a secondary fermentation. This is what the Caucasians did. So they came up with kefir originally by leaving fresh milk in large goat skin leather bags, and that's how they kept their milk. And you know they 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 observed that it's, it fermented, you know, mm, mm-hmm. and it was safe to drink, you know. But they would then somehow, I don't know what stage they started putting in wooden barrels. Or well, after the after the grains developed, or they they, they found, discovered the grains, they would first do a fermentation still in leather bags with the grains initially, right? Then they would strain the contents by pushing all the grains to a corner of the bag, you know, like, like they would squeeze the bag because they could feel the grains when they were squeezing the bag and they would push all the grains to a corner of the bag and then pour off all the milk. And some grains would always come out because this is a very crude straining method, you know, but mm-hmm. most of the grains would always be left in the bag and they would, refill the, they would refill the bag with fresh milk to repeat the fermentation process for 24 hours. But what they've strained, they would put in big barrels and each straining would go into this big barrel. Now, from these big barrels, they would drink from and they would replenish daily. So they had these containers going where they would refill every day and drink from every day, and it was a continual process. 
you know, and that mm. was a secondary fermentation process. Mm. But the grains were only left for that 24-hour period initially in that first fermentation. So how, how much lactose is actually left in the milk once it's been fermented? Well, since uh, what I've read, uh, well, some research that I've read, uh, there's about half left after 24 hours fermentation. There's about f- uh, 50% of lactose left. And then if you leave it to, for a secondary fermentation without the grains in a, in a separate bottle, uh, preferably under airlock, you know, like I do my secondary fermentations in flagons with an airlock, you know, to prevent oxygen from getting in mm. and letting the, letting the gas escape. Because don't forget, we've got yeast activity with KFU, so you've got always gas forming, you know, mm-hmm. and you uh, want to let that escape. Um, um, so the more long you leave it, the less lactose will be left, you know. So, so, so I don't know exactly how much will be left scientifically. There's none research available. I haven't got the equipment to do the research to say exactly how much is left over, say, seven days. But, you know, the longer you leave it, the, the, the less and less will be left, mm-hmm. you know, until there will be a point where probably, you know, 1% might be left only, you know, because the bacteria that, uh, that, that are fermenting this stuff will eventually can't live in those conditions to ferment the rest. You know, they just can't. It's too, acid, too, acidity for them, too acidic for them or, you know, just too many byproducts of other mm-hmm. bacteria that kills other bacteria, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there'll always be a percentage left, a very small amount, unfermentable lactose, I would say. That's my educated guess. Mm-hmm. But it'll be a very small amount after many, many days of secondary fermentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, for any of the listeners, if you have uh, lactose intolerance, but you've tried milk kefir. Let us know how how that goes because I'd be interesting. I'd be interested to see if people with lactose intolerance could actually drink this stuff or not. Yeah. Well, you know how I was, to- I was telling you about the rectal injections yeah. that I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, the reason why I wanted to do it that way because what I read was lactose intolerance uh, research that I was reading many years ago, how they were getting guinea pigs and rectally injected. They wanted to find out was, whether it was the bacteria or a component or a chemical that was making uh, lactose intolerant people able to drink kefir because you can drink it if you're lactose intolerant. Mm. And they know why now. It's because there's bacteria and yeast that produce lactase that a lactose intolerant producer, a lactose intolerant person cannot produce. Lactase is an enzyme that breaks down lactose. So there's lots of lactase bacteria and yeasts in kefir, so a lactose intolerant person, when he drinks the kefir, he or she drinks the kefir, they digest these bacteria that contain the lactase, and that lactase is released into their stomachs, and then your, their bodies use that lactase that their bodies can't make to break down the lactose that's left in the kefir. Oh, so that's wow. why they can tolerate it, yeah. So what they were doing, scientists, they were directly injecting the grains and then feeding these uh, guinea pigs milk to see if they would still be, you know, be able to, to uh, be lactose intolerant. You know, they, 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 they were working with lactose intolerant guinea pigs, mind you, of course, you know, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But they were actually injecting them for one trial, you know, the grains. Yeah. So uh, that's why I came up with that method uh, that I said I was going to try to, to kill myself for those guys. So remember that research. Yeah. 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 And so th- that worked for, on the guinea pigs? That worked of actually… Yes, um, it did. Yeah. Yes, where they directly injected them or where they, you know, uh, fed the, the kefir with the milk, they got the same benefit that somehow the, the, the body was able to utilize the, uh, the, the bacteria that contained the lactase. That's fascinating. Yeah, the microorganisms and the yeast. Because there's yeast. There's also yeasts that can break down lactose in, in kefir. You know, very uh, special mm-hmm. yeasts that are lactose digestible. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the the water kefir because uh, yeah. what I've seen on uh, actually you have some awesome YouTube videos which I'll put a link in um, 
in the show notes. Uh, but you you have like this, this one that you just put up of this massive uh, milk kefir uh, grain that's sort of become like a, a sheet, but also the one of the time lapse of your um, water kefir. Now, I just have been just using sugar and water, but you add some other things to your uh, water kefir, don't you? Yes, yes. Well, how much growth do you get when you make your water kefir? If you uh, if you use, say, uh, one cup of grains, what happens after the fermentation? How long does it take for them to grow and how much do they grow? Uh, that, I, I don't see any growth at, in them at all, pretty much. Like I um, when I got I got like a little a cup of uh, kef- a water kefir with a few grains in it and they yep. did not look very happy. I don't know how I could tell, but it just didn't seem very happy. And it's taken okay. taken me probably uh, what? How long have I had them now? For like probably three or four months, and there's still yes. only there's still only like about half a cup of grains in a seven fifty mil okay. bottle. Okay, if I did, if I had that many grains to begin with, I would have probably had by now about uh, five hundred gram, uh, five hundred pounds of grains. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's why I discovered they need those uh, the, the, the molasses, for instance. See, my, okay. my recipe includes sugar and molasses at the ratio of half a cup of sugar to one teaspoon of molasses. For for how much water? For, for two litres of water two or for, two, for a two-litre batch, which is six and a half, seven cups of water because right. we're using two-litre bottles. Yep. So, you know, yeah. And I use one cup of grains for that. Now, at 22 degrees, when I use that, and I use lemons as well, by the way, slices of lemons, whole. I don't squeeze the lemon juice. Into it, I just leave the lemon whole and let the bacteria take what they want from the lemon. Now, that that, that recipe will double the grains at within 14 hours. That one cup of grains becomes wow. two cups of grains. Yeah. And as, as you see in that video, I time-lapsed it. Yep. Uh, within a minute, you'll see in over a 12-hour growth period uh, how they've doubled in volume. Mm, mm-hmm. and, and the trick is the molasses and the sugar. But I also discovered that if you use pure forms of water, like people, some some people like to use these uh, uh, reverse osmosis waters, which contain nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And I did experiments. So when I use those types of water, although I used that recipe with the molasses, I wasn't getting really good growth as when I was using tap water for some reason. So I wanted to find out why, and I was trying to find out if I can do something for people who want to use these pure forms of water. I still get really good grain growth. And I discovered that if I used eggshell and sodium bicarbonate at a certain amount and used those pure waters, I got the same growth rate as if I used pure tap water, you know, like fresh water that's, that's got mineral content, some sort of mineral content. Mm-hmm. You know, tap water's got minerals from, you know, like uh, fresh water from the river almost does, you know. Mm-hmm. There's always minerals in tap water, unless it's got some fantastic filtration system. But Adelaide water doesn't, so you know we, we've got we've got minerals in our in our in our water, you know. So yeah, so I, I discovered that uh, eggshell, you know, adding the eggshell when you first add it, it doesn't dissolve, of course, because eggshells are not soluble. But after a few hours of fermentation, there's acids produced from the sugars. You get lactic acid and acetic acid and, you know, all sorts of manic, manic – uh, I can't remember all the organic acids now, but there's a lot of different acids formed. Um, and these acids start breaking down the eggshell into a soluble form and release the calcium and the magnesium and the protein and all these other micro elements that eggshell contains mm-hmm. and the sodium bicarbonate. 
Now, what those two elements do is mimic a heavy water. See what I mean? So mm -hmm. adding those things, yeah. sodium bicarbonate and eggshell, once the eggshell is dissolved, that water is like that pure water you begin with, whether it's reverse osmosis or activated charcoal purified water or whatever, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff's been removed from it. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of mineral content, which the, the grain organisms seem to like, and they produce a lot more grains when you add that compared to when you don't, when you use pure forms of water, yeah. Mm, okay. And with the, yeah. uh, do you, is it an aerobic ferment or anaerobic ferment? Do you have a, have a in a closed container? It's an anaerobic container? ferment, really. It's an, anaer it's an, it's an anaerobic ferment, uh, water kefir, preferably. Uh, otherwise, if you don't, there's an experiments done where a friend of mine in France, uh, Fred Pequot, uh, who got some uh, wine-producing places to do their, uh, their their chemist labs to do some uh, research on his water kefirs. He'd done some tests on water kefir that was done in an airtight container and, and water kefir that was made in a in a non-airtight container, and he found there was more um, methanol produced when the when there's aerobic aerobic fermentation okay. and there's air. Now, me uh, methanol is not a very good alcohol. It's what they call the blinding alcohol. You know, you go blind, mm -hmm. drunk on it, you know. You actually go blind when you drink meth methanol. That's why our methylated spirits, although it's called methylated spirits because it originally used to be made from methanol and ethanol. Now it's all made from ethanol, you know, 99%, 95%. They've taken out the methanol because people still drink. You know, you get people that want to drink, you know, our methylated spirits in Australia, you know, a cheap mm. way of getting drunk. Mm. And to stop you from going blind and crazy from the methanol, they've removed that now. So we don't want methanol in our fermentation. So if you ferment water kefir in an airtight container or under an airlock, you're going to get less meth methanol produced. And that's right. been scientifically proven. Okay. And and what about the the milk kefir? Do you do that? Because I usually just put the, put the lid on it. I put it in a jar and put the lid on it. Yeah. Again, preferably anaerobic. And but it, but it in, seems to work in both ways. It's just better when it's anaerobic. It's, of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. The actual fermentation is anaerobic because, you know, in the actual in the actual milk, the grains themselves, uh, the bacteria that are encapsulated, especially there's no freely available oxygen, you know, not really. You know, there's especially the one that, that makes the kefir ant. Uh, he's making kefir ant, this, this guy, under anaerobic conditions in the presence of methanol. I mean ethanol, sorry, wow, okay. <laughs> ethanol. Yeah, in the yep. presence of alcohol. Yeah, yep. so um, there's got to be ethanol present. That's why the yeast has got to be there. So if there's no yeast, you won't get kefiran production, uh, and then you won't get grain growth. So uh, that's under anaerobic conditions. So although if you've got no lid on there, the part that's aerobic is the top layer of your kefir. Mm. You know where the, the where there's freely available oxygen. All those that first inch or so. The first, centimetre or so, two centimetres or so of, of the liquid, if it's not shaken, will be aerobic fermentation. But deeper you go, we're getting anaerobic. So if you've got an airtight container, it'll be completely anaerobic. And if you've got an, air, uh, an airlock on there, again, it'll be anaerobic completely. There'll be no portion of the um, uh, liquid uh, getting any freely available oxygen. So, um, yeah. But you'll notice that under aerobic conditions, you'll get too much yeast activity as well. People complain about this furry carpet growing on their milk kefir, this white furry carpet. It looks like mould, you know. So mm. I think my mold, my kefir's gone mouldy. I said, well, how do you ferment your kefir? Well, I just put a cloth on there when I put my, my grains in the milk. I said, well, you don't do that, you know. The only ferment you do like that is kombucha. Kombucha is aerobic, you know. Kombucha mm. needs to be aerobic. You know, you just put a cloth on the, on, the, on your container and let as much air as possible. They love, uh, they love 
you know, the oxygen to produce that pellicle, especially the SCOBY that's done on top of the liquid specifically because that's where all the oxygen is, but not without kefirs. And if you do, as I said, the, ox the, the, the yeasts that normally do not produce mycelium, you know, that, that, that furry substance that molds are renowned to produce, you know, that fluff, fluffy stuff. Mm -hmm, Some mm -hmm. yeasts under anaerobic conditions, they change the way they reproduce and they can do it asexually or sexually. And when oxygen's brought into the factor, they start producing mycelium. or It's called pseudomycelium because only a true mold produces mycelium, that mm. fluffy stuff. So these yeasts will produce a pseudomycelium, making it look like mold. And, and you see this carpet on the surface of your kefir when you've got too much air coming in. Mm. It looks it looks that. the same as the. Uh, oh, I mean, it might be the same as uh, calm yeast when you do that on like sauerkraut or something. Precisely, sometimes. precisely, mm. precisely. Yeah, precisely. Yep. Again, why is that forming on top? Because of the oxygen. Actually, I I get that on my my water kefir. The, the this um, last time when I did it, I actually had it looks like a scoby. Half of it, and yep. then the other half of it looked like calm yeast. So I don't know what yep. was going on there. You, you would have had both. You would have had uh, acidic acidic acid bacteria from the wild getting in there, and working with yeast to start producing vinegar in your water kefir. Because what happens with water kefir if you leave it after you've strained it from the grains? If you leave it long enough in a non airtight container, it will turn to vinegar, and mm. it will form a scoby eventually. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But whether it does form a scoby or not, there will be acidic acid bacteria that overtake at the end of the fermentation and turn it to a vinegar if there's any sugar left, if there's enough sugar left. Oh, wow. At least. Very interesting. Yeah. Look, there's there's so much information that you've given us here, Dom, and, um, you know, I think I'm going to have to urge everybody to go check out your website. Uh, and, in fact, um, I also noticed after I had looked at your website that, that uh, even – the uh, the famous uh, Sandor Katz, who we've had on the web on the podcast, mentioned you in his book, The Art of Fermentation. So, you oh, obviously yes, you he's have got me in his in his, in his acknowledgements. Yeah, he's, he obviously um, searches out the best information, and you have the best information out there on kefir. <laughs> yes, Sandor Katz originally started off being a member of my one of my internet lists. Uh, called Kefir Making with Yahoo Groups many years ago. In to, when was it? 1999, I think he became a member. Oh wow! Uh, before he sort of started getting into all these things and producing books and stuff. Yeah, he was an early member of my Kefir list, and he got some grains from someone I can't remember who from. And you know, start, we started discussing Kefir, and then he went his own way, and, and he's done so well. I'm so proud of that man. Mm. That's mm -hmm. a good man. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, that's why he, uh, I think he's got a lot of information from my site. Like a lot of people worldwide do, they they, they get a lot of information from my site, and they they, they flourish and they, and they go in their own. They take it in their own direction. Where they create a YouTube video, uh, you know, you, you could be guaranteed a lot of people that know about Kefir today, they would have seen come across my site at one point in time. Uh, it's just a matter of fact. <laughs> it's just true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there any other sort of things that you want to share with people that you see people yes. are doing wrong when they're, when they're making kefir? Well, um, yeah, fear. The fear of letting stainless steel touch their, their kefir grains. Stainless steel is fine. Uh, it will not hurt your kefir grains. Uh, there's lots of unpublished research that's available, and I've done it even with a scientist to show that actual kefir grains grow even better in brass containers which you would never want to drink the kefir. The reason why you don't want to touch metals with kefir is because when first introduced to the West, 
there wasn't stainless steel available. So there was some smart man those days saying that, look, if you're going to use that strainer that's made from brass, mate, to strain your kefir, and every day you're going to drink that kefir, you're going to be leaching zinc and, and copper in your in your uh, kefir. And by the two years from now, you're going to have uh, zinc and copper poisoning, you know, because mm-hmm. there wasn't stainless steel available. That's why the myth has come about, don't let any metal object touch your grains, you'll destroy them. No. Kefir grains and metal are fine. It's just that, that for our health, we don't want to use reactive metals for stirring our kefir or for straining our kefir. But stainless steel is not reactive, and you can use stainless steel strainers for straining. You can use stainless steel containers for fermenting your kefir if you want to. Uh, they've done it in Russia for since the early 60s, you know, fermenting large vats of uh, milk kefir grains, original kefir grains. You know, now they don't use kefir grains anymore. Commercially, in big stainless steel vats, and their grains grew the same as if they were using clay crops or leather bags or glass jars. So that's the thing I want to say to people. Don't be afraid of using stainless steel objects to stir your grains with, to pick them up with, or anything like that. Mm. It's fine. Okay. But just don't use reactive metals because it's no good for you. If you stir your kefir with a, a copper spoon or a, a silver spoon, anything that's reactive, any metal that's reactive, you know, uh, then you're going to be adding those metal ions into that kefir. Mm. And if you do it every day, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be drinking those metal ions, and you, you can, you know, become toxic. <laughs> From heavy metal that's, poisoning. That's yeah. definitely uh, good advice to go by. What I would love to do, Dom, is get your advice. We we like to go a little bit, um, sort of philosophical at the end of the podcast. And you know, oh, this, this podcast is called the Probiotic Life. What's your sort of wisdom that you would like to share with us for living a probiotic life? Well, that's a good question. You've got. I don't like being called out like this. Ben, why'd you do this to me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I say live and let live because if you don't let live, you won't live. Mm. It's you for for I and I for you. The perfect balance. Okay, what do do you mean by that? You for I and I for you. Well, you for I and I for you. It's like a symbolic relationship, you know. Mm. And it's a perfect balance. You know, if you write those words, you for I and I for you, and you put a and you put a, a line under and there's a mirror there's it's a mirror of each other, you know? Mm. In word just in the words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a balance, you know, you know, it's like, you know, we've got to work together, you know, we've got to work with each other, not you know. Uh, not uh, against each other or for each other or to each other or at each other. We've got to work with each other. Mm, great. That's what I think the magic to life is. Great, great uh, wisdom to to end up by, Dom. Uh, so you have uh, your website, which we will we'll put a link to, and you have you sell kefir grains on your website. Is that right? Yes, well, what, what, I don't have a, a cart as such. It's not a commercial site like that. What you do is you go to my site and I mention the products that I have in one, at one of the one of the web pages. You'll find it if you do store search for Dom's Kefir Grains, uh, and it'll take you to where uh, my email address is. And you send me an email, and I do things personally. You don't go to a shopping cart and you don't meet me. You get a personal email from me or from my wife, and we'll give you a pricing invoice as a return email at, at, to your to your to your email. And from that, you can take it from there whether you want to purchase from us. And our grains are what you get that we use. My grains are cultured in my kitchen. They're not 
culture from my cousins who give me their spare grains, the person down the road who gives me their spare grains, and, they, and they're keeping the fridge for weeks and weeks on end, you know, collecting grains from everyone else, because a lot of people are doing that in this business today. Uh, I get a lot of people who are un- very unhappy with, with what they're getting from people in Australia. Uh, they get a teaspoon for, you know, you know, a measly teaspoon of grains, and then they put them in the milk and it does nothing, you know. Mm. And I know for a fact that some of these p- people that are selling grains, they used to buy from me in bulk. And, and I know that they used to keep them in the fridge, these sellers. And by the time the person gets that last grain, probably in the fridge a month, you know, and it doesn't say to the person, look, this is a, a sleeping kefir grain. You'll have to take it easy for the first week. It, you know, it has to be woken up. He just says, oh, they'll start making kefir straight away. You know what I mean? But they don't. So I get all these unhappy people come to me, and I've never had never an unhappy customer with my kefir grains, never. Mm. But I've had many people come to me from other people who do not do the right thing, which is a pity, mm. which mm. is a real pity. So yeah, that's that's what that's one thing I can guarantee you. Our grains are healthy and uh, producing beautiful kefir, and, and grow uh, well, and, and produced uh, from a, a a passionate kefir um, alchemist. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, that's an honourable uh, name. <laughs> Well, uh, Dom, thank you so much for being on The Probiotic Life. It was a nice privilege to uh, meet you, Ben, and uh, it was a pleasure, a real pleasure. Great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much. You can tell Dom is passionate about what he does, and I really enjoyed chatting to him. Uh, I'll put a link to his website. Check out his website. It's old school format, but it has a lot of great information on there. Uh, I'll also link in the show notes to his YouTube videos. He's got some great videos there. And he really does have some vigorous kefir. I got some kefir from him a few weeks ago. And the kefir that I got from him is out-competing my other jar of kefir by miles. So when you order from Dom, you can be sure that you're getting quality. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for hanging out with us here on The Probiotic Life. And we love hearing from you. We love hearing about how you are living a probiotic life. And we love hearing feedback about the podcast. And may the beneficial microbes be with you. Until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life. And he is featured in the book, The Art of Fermentation. <laughs> Fermentation. <laughs>